Would you pray with me? Lord God of all creation, ruler of heaven and earth, and we pray our hearts. We thank you that we can sing all glory be to Christ because of the Father's work in revealing himself to us through his Son. We thank you that we can gather here today not for political party, not for social consciousness, not around race or ethnicity, but around Jesus, who is making all things new, who unites Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, sick and healthy, people of cruel and sorrowful backgrounds as well as those who have come from healthy and whole homes. We thank you that you are Lord of your people. We thank you that you are speaking to us in this season, in this time, and in this moment this morning. What we have sung today is coming from hearts that, while prone to wander, confess that you are our Lord, our all, our Christ, our salvation, and our hope. We recognize that even as we pray, Lord, we are humbling ourselves before you, confessing yet again where we have failed you this week, where we may not have even prepared ourselves this morning, Sure, our outside is adorned, we're clean, we're dressed, but maybe we occupied our hearts with things of a much lower estate this morning rather than seeking you first. We confess, Lord, that we, we know better, <clears throat> and we at times rise to the occasion, other times we shrink back and allow life and its distractions to get in the way of what we are coming to do as a church, the called out ones in this community who are covenanting themselves together as South Canyon Baptist Church. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought in more than just our members, but guests, friends, maybe even strangers, yet people who need to hear your word and need to know you as Lord and Savior and so we ask, Lord, that you would be merciful not only to the membership of South Canyon, but also to our guests that are here this morning. Let something that's said, whether in song, in the scriptures that are read, in prayers, or in the proclamation of the word, let it resonate within the hearts of those that you are still drawing to yourself. Not only build faith in your people, but bring new people into the faith. We pray, Father, that you would bless our time, that you would make much of yourself in our presence, that your spirit, we yield ourselves and ask that your spirit would convict where, where sin has been disguised, where it has been coddled and cared for, that you would draw it out, we may see it for what it is, that you would bring courage to those who are weak of heart, you would bring healing both to physical needs 
and the spiritual needs. Lord, we thank you that our brother is restored. Betsy and Brian Combs are able to be back in this area from a safe surgery this week. We pray for Bob and then continued watching over him. So many needs that we could spend time reflecting on and praying over this morning. And I'm thankful that uh, the elders of this church do pray for its members. I'm thankful that as we gather on our Sunday nights that members are praying for one another. Not only for physical needs, but more importantly, Lord, that our hearts would be tender toward you. That you would use us to be salt and light in this community. Now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, take even this simple introduction and set a, set a stage for us to, to lean into your word in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, to understand the importance of it, not only to those believers in that time, but for us today. And we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified both in the hearts and in the lips of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So you heard Acts chapter 17 read, and that's kind of the setup for our passage. So you might have seen the sermon series card this morning and saw that it was just one verse, and maybe you even thought to yourselves, as some others who shall remain unnamed, you're going to preach a sermon on just one verse? Yes, absolutely, and a little bit more than one verse. So this morning, um, my, my habit as a, as a preacher of God's Word is to work through books of the Bible, and typically the first sermon of a new series is, is somewhat of an introduction to the books. And since we're going over, working through over the next 11 weeks, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, I'm going to give you a, a, just a view. Imagine you're in the hills, all right, and you're looking over Pactola Lake. Okay, that's, that's the goal this morning, is to give you a view of what First and Second Thessalonians have in store for us as a church, what God is speaking in these passages to his people about, how he is trying to encourage and equip his church. So if you go to uh, Acts 17, I want to just uh, bring your attention to a couple things before we get to chapter 1 and verse 1 of First Thessalonians. What's interesting in the book of Acts, Acts is kind of a real-time story, as it were, of what's going on in the early church, and then in Peter's ministry, and then it pivots over to Paul's ministry, and then it kind of abruptly ends, and we're left with the word of God going forth, and the nations are hearing it. And then come all the epistles, letters, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Paul's writings, Peter's writings, James's writings, John's writings, and those kind of fill in the back the backstory of what's been taking place in Acts and in the years afterward. What's interesting is in Acts sixteen nine. I know it's not in chapter seventeen, so I'm just going to beg your indulgence this morning. Paul has this vision, and. It appeared to Paul in the night, we're told, in Acts 16.9, a man of Macedonia was standing there. Now, how did he know he was from Macedonia? A little bit of research this week. These, the people in Macedonia were known for wearing wide-brimmed hats. 
and they had a certain dress that uh, protected them from the weather. It also um, served as a unique characteristic of the people of Macedonia. So perhaps it was the attire that set him out as someone from Macedonia. A small detail, but he's standing there, and look, it says that he was urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. But what happens is, between Acts 16 and Acts 17, is Paul is in this city called Philippi. And he's preaching the gospel there in the Jewish synagogue. And the Jews, some receive it, and others are really pushing back against Paul's message. To them, it is anathema. It is blasphemous. And what happens is, you're familiar with the story of Paul and Silas being thrown into the jail. They're beaten, mistreated at the hands of the mob. There's no trial. There's no uh, civil or judicial interaction on their behalf. They're just abused and thrown into prison. And they sing and pray and give glory to God that night. And God shakes that foundation of that prison, breaking doors open with this earthquake. And the jailer, thinking that prisoners had escaped and his life would be forfeited, is about to take his own. And Paul stops him. And then this man brings Paul and Silas into, their, into his own home, binds up their wounds, and is asking them, how is this that having gone through what you just did, this very night you are doing what you are doing? And he is miraculously converted, as is his family and his house as they hear the gospel. And so the next morning... You know, Paul and Silas are kind of like expelled from prison, and they're told, you know, learn your lesson and get out of town. And they're like, no, 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 wait a second. We're Roman citizens. We have rights here. And everybody's scared. But what happens as the book of or Acts chapter 16 closes, they are, went out of the prison, verse 40, and they visited Lydia, the woman that they first met on the riverside. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So Paul is going to go to Macedonia as a result of persecution in Philippi, a persecution that is making him most unwelcome and is bringing unwanted heat towards the church there, and he's going off into Macedonia. We're told that they travel, and notice in verse 1 of chapter 17, Paul, as his habit was, went into the synagogue of the Jews. This is the place where Jews would gather on the Sabbath, and they would hear the Scriptures read. Now remember, their Bible is the Old Testament. And it stops there. And so they would read Scriptures, they would sing psalms, they would pray, they would ask God to reveal himself in his Messiah and bring about a restoration of the nation and his kingdom on earth. And so that it was a natural outlet for Paul to go and to take those Old Testament scriptures that had long been misunderstood and to unpack them in such a way that the, these Jews would understand that the scriptures themselves speak of Jesus who has already been and who has proven himself to be the Messiah from, as we saw last Sunday, raising himself from the dead. Paul reasoned with them. Three weeks, we're told, 
Now, we're not sure if this is all the period of time that Paul spent in Thessalonica or not, but for these three Sabbaths, he's in the synagogue, and he is preaching the gospel to these Jews, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Two contrary things to all Jewish thinking up to that point about the Messiah. The Messiah would come as a political and a military hero in Jewish thinking. And yet, how does Jesus come? Lowly in the form of a servant. Paul says it was necessary for him to suffer. The suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 It was also necessary that he would rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And we saw, as Ken read for us this morning, that some of them were greatly persuaded. And so they joined Paul and Silas, and others, others not so much. The Jews were jealous, we're told. And let me just say, too, as you look at verse 4, you see it's clear that there's a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So we have a Jewish congregation hearing the gospel. Some of them ascribe to it, follow it, believe it, embrace it. And then a lot of Greeks, non-Jews, embrace the gospel. This is the foundation of this early church, primarily a Gentile one. But notice verse 5 says, the Jews who did not believe, they were jealous. And they stirred up some wicked men of the rabble and formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. No doubt this is where Paul and Silas were receiving hospitality from Jason, probably a leader in the synagogue, known in the public, And when they could not find them, they dragged him and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, and they have come here also. And Jason is culpable. He's received them into his house. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there was another King Jesus. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you don't know anything about Thessalonica... You will hear that last verse, and it will just gloss over in your minds. Because Jesus, King of the Jews, that was the title nailed to the cross above his head, right? I mean, Caesar's the king. So in our minds, it's a small, trifling little comment. But what's interesting is the city of Thessalonica had not always been a city. So I'm going to take you on a little history tour. Some of you may like this. And some, I know, even within my own family, don't like history so much. I'm the odd man out at times. But there was this guy named Philip II. He was king of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia was one of the Greek states. He ruled that kingdom and tried to expand it, conquering some neighboring city-states, until 335 B.C. when he was assassinated and his son took over the throne. His name, perhaps you will recognize this from history, was Alexander the Great. He perfected his dad's military prowess, his battle 
hardened strategies. He refined and perfected them so that the empire that Alexander led, the the nation that he led, became an empire, stretching all the way down to the south in Egypt and all the way east to the Indus River in India. I've been to India. It is a long way away. What the world has seen as the largest empire to that point, and perhaps even of all times, and yet it was short-lived because just 12 years later, Alexander would die. And the kingdom was divided into four realms. There was no succession plan, so his four generals fought and had wars, and they divided up this massive kingdom into four parts. A general named Antipater I don't know if I'm saying this right, so just forgive me. I'm from Illinois. We don't, we don't pronounce S's on the name of our state, so you just have to endure. He received Macedonia and Greece, and a short time later he died, and then the kingdom was taken by a man named Cassander. Now this guy planned for his succession. He married a woman named Thessalonica. She was the daughter of Philip II, the half-sister of Alexander. He's aligning himself with the royal family, and he is going to make Macedonia the kingdom, an enduring kingdom in his mind. And so what he does is he, he takes this area that became the city of Thessalonica in Paul's day. This is back in the B.C.s, long before Jesus had come, hundreds of years before it. And he takes all these neighboring cities and he combines the population into one new city, which he names after his wife. It became the largest and most important city in Macedonia. But between Cassander's reign and what would happen later is this became a hotbed of conflict. You see, Macedonia was on the decline and Rome is on the rise. And they are neighboring pretty close to one another. And so Rome is going to make sure that they are going to defeat Cassander, his armies, and all the kings that followed after him, and they are going to subject Macedonia to their rule. And that's what happens. And yet for hundreds of years, any new man that stood up who said, I will lead a nation to throw off Rome's oppression, and I will lead Macedonia to a safe place, a better season, I will establish, reestablish the kingdom of Philip II or of Alexander the Great. They would gain an army, and then they would go to war, and they would be defeated, and the people would be destroyed. The populations and cities were looted. One time they said, uh, I read that they took so much loot out of the city of Macedonia, of Thessalonica, that the citizens of Rome did not have to pay taxes for an entire year because of all the loot that was taken from one city. For three days, there was a parade of all the prisoners and the jewels and the treasures. It was a wealthy place, but it was also a hotbed. And so all that to say, when we look at Acts chapter 17, and we see that these Jews are inciting the Gentiles, the Macedonians, to say these guys are troublemakers and they are trying to establish another king. The Macedonians were so tired of getting beaten by Rome at this point 
that they did not want any more trouble for themselves. In fact, they had kind of experienced a little bit of a revival because in about 148 B.C., the kingdom of Macedonia was completely dissolved under Romans' control. A little over 100 years later, it was given a special honor as known as a free city, which meant they didn't have to pay taxes to Rome. They didn't even have to be governed by Roman officials. The city could elect their own officials, and the citizens of the city could determine the laws and the judgments. They were freely operating. And so here you have people, Jews, who understood the historic and political winds of the time. And in order to smear Christianity, they said, guys, do you remember our history as a nation, the Macedonians? I mean, we got it good right now. These guys are trying to mess that all up. You know what's happened every time a guy has stood up and said, I will be king like Alexander was. Our nation, our people have suffered at the hands of Rome. You don't want that to happen. So you need to get rid of everybody who speaks of this guy named Jesus. That's the historical framework in which Paul is ministering. This city was large, it was prosperous, it was located in an ideal situation on a great harbor on this main thoroughfare, one of the most famous roads in all of Rome, the Via Ignatia. It was a, a direct supply line to the city of Rome. And so here's Paul walking into this hotbed of history, having been chased out of Philippi, and now the same thing is happening in Thessalonica. As the Jews in Philippi find out that Paul didn't go so far away, they go down to Thessalonica and they stir up trouble there yet again. What do we read? Verse 8, the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They did not want to lose their status as a free city. They did not want to create problems with Rome. And so they took money as security from Jason and the rest. They let them go. And Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas, I'm so, sorry, they were sent away by night to Berea. The, the, the Christians there are like, it is too hot for you to be here. You need to get out of town. This Gentile church that started so quickly, that appears to be, in such a short time, a vibrant and growing ministry, a threat to the Jews. We see that in spite of this, it grew, and rapidly so. So now let's jump over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, all right? Here it is, the big verse. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Paul gives a greeting to a church that he was able to be a part of for a short period of time and then was forced to flee from. Paul is writing a letter to a a group of believers that he loves deeply. And there seems to be no doubt whatsoever that Paul wrote this letter. He says so in the first verse. It's generally agreed by scholars that it was written in the early 50s A.D. So here, this is a really unique thing that I did not know. This is very likely the earliest writing of the New Testament. 
the oldest written book in the New Testament is not the Gospel of Mark, not even Galatians, but 1 Thessalonians. So Paul is writing to people very short period of time after he had been there ministering with them. And what we read and find out is that Paul wanted to go back to these people. His time had been cut short. He desperately wanted to teach and preach and minister to them more and build them in the faith. He loved them. You will read over and over in these two short letters that he has great affection for these people. And he is concerned about their well-being because even though he's off the hot seat, the, the, the church is still facing persecution in the city. The Jews have not stirred up the Gentiles for the Gentiles to just have stopped, but Christians are still there. The Gentiles' concern for an usurper king was still there. And so this church in Thessalonica was suffering. And Paul is writing as he hears word back from Timothy's report of the setting and the situation within the church, he's concerned for them, so he writes 1 Thessalonians. And it seems as though 2 Thessalonians was written probably a few months after the first letter. But what's interesting is if we go back to Acts chapter 20, and you don't need to turn there, just footnote this. In verses 1 through 5, we find out that as much as Paul wanted to get to Thessalonica a second time and couldn't, under his time frame, which he speaks of in 1 Thessalonians, he eventually does make his way back there. Acts 20 shows us on his third missionary trip, he was able to return and visit. So what I'd like to do in the, in the remaining moments that we have is just give you a little bit of a view of what actually takes place in this letter. There's some really important themes. Paul starts with this, to the church of the Thessalonians, and notice the qualifiers that he makes. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is talking about a duality in the the Godhead. Right early, early in Christian theology is this understanding of the Trinity. And Paul will bring up the Spirit in verse, uh, what is it, verse 5. He speaks of this hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Loved, they are believers that are loved by God, God who has chosen them, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So this idea of a Trinitarian view as Christianity is known, not a monotheistic like Islam, Judaism, but the God had been three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, This is so early in the church's history, we should not doubt that this was something that was created sometime down the road. Paul understood the process of the Godhead, the plan to bring about a redemption. And from the outset, if you look at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 1, and then even the beginning of of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you see, and again in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul is celebrating the faith of these believers, their love for one another, their obedience, their steadfast hope in Jesus, even though they had suffered. 
and then he identifies with them. Guys, I know exactly what it's like to suffer for Jesus, to be persecuted by people because of your loyalty to Jesus. This has happened to me. Don't you remember how it was when I was there with you, both in Philippi and in Thessalonica? Even though his departure was abrupt and unexpected, it has not dampened his love for these people. Chapter 3, we learn that Paul was unable to return and continue the work. We could bear it no longer. We were willing to be, uh, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Paul was concerned that they would not be moved by the persecution that they were facing, verse 3 says. Paul says, you yourselves know that we are destined for this. This idea of Christian suffering is not a new one. Paul taught this church this at an early stage. And Paul has a desire to see and invest in these people more, but he can't get there, so he sends Timothy on his behalf. And the report that Timothy gives, verses 6 through 13 of chapter 3, really encourages Paul's heart. And so, to this point in chapter 1, 2, and 3, we see Paul is touching on theology a little bit, but more of it is a theology of suffering, a theology of the gospel, the Father, Son, and Spirit working together to produce a chosen people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And now he gets into the practical stuff, chapter 4. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He gives several commands to the church. He understands that you're facing persecution, new believers. Most of you are Gentiles. You don't have the framework of Judaism and the understanding of the law and the prophets. So let me just make it simple for you guys. Verses 1 through 8. This is the will of God, verse 3, for your sanctification. Verse 4, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And that you know how each of you how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul is concerned that the pressures that this young believers are facing will cause their faith to crack and they will go back to old habits. I mean, isn't this a problem that we as Christians have too? I mean, we could have been saved for months or even years, perhaps even decades. And when the pressure mounts to a certain point, we kind of tend to say, I'm going to escape for a little indulgence. I'm going to go a path of darkness. Paul says that it not ought ought not to be the case. Don't let these pressures provide a temptation to return to old sinful patterns. You need to continue pursuing Christ in your faith. Abstain from sexual immorality. We'll dig into that more in the weeks to come. But here's another thing that Paul teaches. Once again, he expresses his love and admiration for this church. And he says, I don't have to teach you anything about the love of God. You guys have demonstrated your love for God and for one another so powerfully that all of Macedonia and Achaia knows about this. 
Other Christians see how you have cared for one another. And you think about it, in the context of persecution, when you need people you can depend on most, it's when you're suffering, isn't it? And this church excelled at caring for one another, supporting one another, even in the face of persecution. God taught them this from the very beginning. Paul doesn't need to instruct them on this. All he does is applaud it and encourages it to continue all the more. Those are in verses 9 and 10. Now look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, I want to rebuke those, though, however, who are in the church and who are causing problems. Pressure doesn't always make us go back to sexual immorality, but it can make us start picking at one another, blaming one another, finding fault, being filled with pride. And so he says, those that are causing problems within the church, I want you to, I urge you to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Perhaps the church, as it followed the example of the believers in Jerusalem and Judea, had cared for one another in a communal nature. And that is a good thing, but it can also lead to abuse. And apparently some had stopped working and were relying solely on the church to meet their physical needs and were not willing to do anything to take care of themselves let alone help others. And so Paul's like, guys, uh, do you remember my example? He says this in chapter 1 and 2. I could have asked you for resources. As an apostle, I had that right. As a preacher of the gospel, I had that right. But I worked with my own hands to be an example to you of how we as Christians ought to be good, hard workers. And he even uses this in verse 12 as as a a mark of, of identity for outsiders. These Christians are lazy. I mean, all they do is sit around and talk about this king. They're causing problems. They're not showing up for work anymore. And so their reputation in the community is starting to tank. But then Paul shifts from some practical teaching and goes back to theology in verses 13 of chapter 4 all the way down through chapter 5 and verse 11 he starts teaching eschatology this is why this book these two books are so unique in the New Testament they speak so much about what is going to happen when Jesus returns Paul addresses the concerns of how what happens to those who die in the faith We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. I think you might be interested to know what happens to the dead in Christ. Do we just stop existing, as some would say in this day? It's just this annihilationism. You just cease to exist. We're just here for a short period of time. And then Christians, like everybody else, when you die, you're just done. Well, Paul has a word to say about that, a word that would help the church, especially as they wrestled with the idea that they might have missed the boat as it relates to Christ's return. 
They may have not been on alert when Jesus returned, and then he's collected his believers, and he's gone, and now they're left in the midst of suffering, and the word is being spread that, oh, you're suffering because you missed the boat. You didn't get on the trolley. You missed the bus. Having addressed these theological concerns, Paul then closes out his first letter with some practical concerns within the life of the church. Look at uh, chapter 5 and verse 12. Respect, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. You know who he's talking about there? A church's elders, the shepherds of the flock who are exercising oversight, as Peter will say in 1 Peter 5. He's saying, you need to submit to your leaders. We've invested in them. You trust them. They are laboring God's word over you, and they are working in your midst to care for you and help you grow in the faith. You need to esteem them very highly in love because of this work. Keep the peace. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Don't retaliate evil for evil. Seek to do good to one another and to everyone, not just within the faith, but even outsiders. We could understand that to say. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. I mean, Paul does this, doesn't he? He's not asking them to do anything that he's not done and that we as Christians are not called to do. Don't quench the spirit or despise prophecies. Test everything to see whether it is true. And then hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And he closes with a benediction. The Second Thessalonians is much shorter than First Thessalonians, just three chapters. And they're, they're pretty succinct, as it were. Again, Paul is expressing his love and admiration for these believers, their growing faith, their love for God and one another. He's joyful that even in the face of persecution, they are still maintaining the faith. He speaks of God as the author of their salvation, the author of all grace and peace. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2 and 2 and 16 and 3 and 16. He makes it clear, just as he did in 1 Thessalonians, that God is the one who's chosen them to salvation. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, that they must walk worthy of this calling, that God is the one who strengthens the saints unto perseverance, and that God is the only deity to be worshipped. He speaks of that in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Again, he speaks of the Spirit's work of sanctification in chapter 2. And what he does in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, is this. He speaks of a coming judgment that is meant to be a comfort to Christians who are suffering now. And I think uh, you, you, you think about our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for the name of Christ. Whether it's through the atrocities of war as it's taking place in Ukraine or whether it's ethnic wars in Africa, or whether it's the Middle East and being persecuted, or China. Paul says, I believe in God's future righteous judgment. 
when Jesus comes and reveals himself to the nations. Paul says in verses 5 through 10 that this day will come and the church ought to trust that God will bring judgment on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9 says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, this is really interesting because it's almost like an imprecatory prayer from the Psalms. Paul is saying something that to our ears, our modern ears, sounds really unloving. Christians are supposed to love everybody. We're supposed to pray and hope and work such a way that all people would come to know Jesus and that, that they would understand that Jesus represents a God of love, not an Old Testament God of anger and wrath. And yet the reality of it is that these are people that Paul is speaking of who have continually rejected God's mercy in Jesus. Um, having a conversation last Sunday morning after the service, we were talking, and it was like um, Christians, I made the statement last week, I think it was, something to the effect of, we're surprised when bad things happen to good people, and the observation that was shared with me after the service, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is we ought to be surprised, not that bad things happen to good people, but that good things happen to bad people. We're all that way. I mean, we are all the bad people in the story of the Bible. There's none righteous, no, not one. So the shocking thing about God's grace is that any one of us would benefit from it in any way. And so when we hear words like this in the New Testament or in other portions of the Scriptures, we ought not to think that God is trigger-happy and quick to bring judgment. Rather, He has been patient and long-suffering, and over and over He has extended mercy, and it's being rejected. And there comes a time when that comes to an end. And therefore, His justice is both righteous, deserved, it's pure, and it's holy. And this is a comfort to every Christian who has ever suffered for the name of Christ. To know that he is the avenger, we are not. He has the power to yield the sword, we do not. And so we trust, as Paul said. And then in, again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul corrects the teaching that Jesus has already returned, as in 1 Thessalonians he provides more teaching on the future day of judgment. He tells them, hey guys, here's what you need to understand. There's a series of events that needs to take place before Jesus will come. This great rebellion must take place and this man of lawlessness must be revealed. And how he is going to do it is going to astound even the most wild of us. He's going to set himself up in the temple of our God and he will declare himself to be God. But know this, he is a tool in the hands of Satan. And what I love about Paul's writing is with the breath, Jesus, with a breath will destroy him. It reminds us of that, that hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. One little word shall fell him. He says in verse 8, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
So we see, again, that Paul is encouraging these believers to not be deceived about what has yet to come. This Antichrist will be defeated, and yet many, many will be deceived by this false Christ, and God will condemn them for the rebellion against him. In chapter 3, Paul closes his letter with more practical instructions. Believers should separate from Christians who are idle and disobedient to the apostles' teaching. He illustrates again from his own time among them how Christians should work quietly and for their own living in verses 6 through 15. And then he closes with this benediction. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. To a people who are suffering for the name, to hear that prayer, that blessing be spoken over them, had to bring about comfort and thankfulness. Among Paul's letters, these two epistles contain the most information about the second coming of Jesus. They also demonstrate the importance of the church to understand when this will happen as well as how the church ought to conduct themselves until this happens. Not only do both of these letters say much about the church's future, but they also have much to say about how the church is to conduct itself in the present, submitting to its elders with respect and honor, loving one another, abstaining from sexual immorality, unnecessary divisions and conflict, and an ethic of hard work to provide for oneself and others. And further, Paul does something so unique. If this is the earliest document written in the New Testament, for him to expand the gospel and express it in its entirety, that a holy God has extended unmerited grace to sinful and rebellious people, and that he did this through Jesus... And that all who repent can be saved are called to a life of worship and witness to this great grace, then it ought to instruct us about how important the gospel is in making gospel people. We can't clean ourselves up to get God's favor. We are changed as a result of God's favor. And yet there's also a great warning to all that would doubt such things. Christ is coming soon. And those who reject him will face his judgment. These two letters are going to occupy our attention for the next several weeks. And it's been my prayer that God will use his word to build this church's faith, love, joy, peace, and holiness. And that he would use his word to rescue many more from certain judgment. It's not profound, right? I mean, we are rehearsing a letter that's nearly 2,000 years old. And yet, it's just as important and relevant today as it was then. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us as we reflect on these letters as we think about what it is that the church was wrestling with, these questions about the end times, this 
understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, even in the face of suffering for Jesus, this natural and human desire to shrink back and to revert to old ways and to just assimilate and blend back in with the culture, to keep your head down as the safest place, and yet to be bold, called to be bold in their love for one another and for others, to be clear in understanding the gospel, unashamed of the faith, I pray that you would build your church through your word as you promised to do, and that we too might see the fruit of the Spirit so powerfully evident in our midst that word will spread and that many more will come to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name for your glory and our good. Amen.